Our scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions. Under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the error that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall to your right, ten thousand at your right hand, but he will not come, he will not come near you. You will only look to, with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, whom is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On, the hand, on their hand they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. You may be seated. And as you're being seated, let's pray together. Now, Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Your word that always accomplishes its purpose. So, Father, I pray by your spirit you would use your words to do exactly what you want to do in us and through us as a church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, in the uh, Bayswater neighborhood of London, there is this street called Leinster Gardens. And on this street, there are these old uh, mid-Victorian ornate homes, these townhomes. When you think of London and money, you think of these sort of homes. Uh, the houses are truly beautiful, except for the fact that number 23 and 24 Leinster Gardens are not homes at all. They are facades. See, they appear at Street View to be homes. They have doors and windows and balconies and all that you'd expect from a home. But to peer behind them would be to discover nothing. Nothing. Only the exposed railway tracks they were intended to hide. On one hand, these facades are beautiful. It's a beautiful row of homes. Most people would never know that they are facades. They look real and they feel very real. On the other hand, as homes, these facades are useless. Useless. Outside of covering the tracks, in a moment of danger, when shelter is needed, these facades are useless. Good for nothing. I can't help but think of these Leinster Garden homes, these facades, and how they help invite us into what the psalmist is saying this morning. We began by hearing these words in Psalm 91, verses 1 to 2, words that might be familiar to many of you. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. The language this morning, the language we have to deal with, to wrestle with this morning, is, is unmistakably the language of home, of home. 
But as any builder will tell you, the strength and quality of a home is not proven or shown on sunny days or nice days or in good weather, but in the middle of storms, in danger. In other words, danger, difficulties, trials, heartaches, all these things work together to reveal the quality of our dwelling, the, the quality of our abode, our refuge, our fortress. It is danger that tells us if we are dwelling in a number 23 or 24 lens gardens. And if it is a facade we are living under, of course, by the time danger comes, it is too late. And so Psalm 91 comes to us this morning as a sort of housing inspector. And as any good housing inspector, three questions will be asked. The first is this. Where is your home? Where's your home? Second question the psalm will ask us is, can it withstand the storm? And then thirdly and finally, how can I get in? Three questions to guide our time through Psalm 91 this morning. Where's your home? Can it withstand the storm? And how can I get in? So first question, where is your home this morning? If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to have a physical Bible or pull it up on your phone in front of you. Look at Psalm 91 with me. As an aside, if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles for you to keep. So head to Chelsea at the back. She wants to give one to you as she rocks her baby right now. Psalm 91, 1 to 2. Let's read that together. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Actually, before you consider your dwelling this morning, the psalmist invites you to consider his dwelling, his home. In using four different names for God in, in rapid and quick succession, the, the poetic effect of these first two verses that we're left with is one of someone building a grand cathedral, layer by layer by layer, and brick by brick, and floor by floor by floor by floor. One commentator says this, Most high is a title which cuts every threat down to size. Almighty is the name which sustained the homeless patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Lord, Yahweh, was the name given to Moses. I am, and I am with you. Even the general term God, Elohim, is made intimate by the possessive as you are my God. I like to think of this as the ancient Near Eastern equivalent of my dad can beat up your dad, Right? <laughs> This is that kind of language. It's a towering, colossal, cathedral view of who God is, sure and steadfast and strong and proven so in history. And it's in him the psalmist has chosen to live. It's in this God that psalmist has chosen to make his home. What does that mean, actually? It's nice metaphorical, poetic language, but what does it actually mean? I think the concept of home plays a large role in our cultural imagination, does it not? When we go to a, a restaurant or someone's house, 
and we're welcomed warmly, invited in, and there's, you know, some stew on the stove and a fire going. This is sort of my own fantasy. Now you're welcome into it. Like, we feel like we're home, right? We say that. This feels like home to me. Uh, Every year before COVID and hopefully in the coming years, Canadians spend millions of dollars to return back home to where they were born, uh, to reacquaint themselves with the places of their birth. Uh, Usually every summer, well, we try to at least, sorry, mom and dad, go back to Ontario where I was born and visit the lake country there. And I pull up a Muskoka chair because it is a Muskoka chair, not an Adirondack chair. And I pull up a Muskoka chair and I sit down in that chair and this wave of nostalgia just floods over me, rushes over me. And yet, while we have this sort of language of home in our cultural imagination, we know I know that each of these moments, being welcomed warmly, visiting your country of birth, even sitting by the lake, while they hint at home, taste of home, have the aroma of home, they never satisfy fully our appetite for home, do they? There's nothing like going back to this place you remember as a kid and having this grand vision in your head and be like, oh, this is terrible. I remember this very, very differently, right? It's like going to that amusement park you went to as a kid with those towering roller coasters and you go back to see it's like this dilapidated wooden structure. We always do that, don't we? See, C.S. Lewis, who's an author, he wrote about this insatiable longing for a transcendent home using the language of spiritual homesickness. Spiritual homesickness. He wrote this. Our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside, Lewis says, is no mere neurotic fantasy, but the truest index of our real situation. See, for Lewis, uh, our real situation to which he refers is that we are made by God and placed in a home with God. Not just any home, but a home in his presence, before him, enjoying him, a home, a country free of sin and sickness and disease. But we've long since left that home, haven't we? Chafing at God's authority, wanting to build a home of our own where we are king of our castle, we've walked east of Eden, as it were. So ever since, we've built monuments, temples, homes, fortresses in Genesis 8, even ziggurats to our own glory and for ourselves. But the spiritual homesickness, despite everything we do, remains. Despite the palatial existences we create for ourselves, spiritual homesickness remains. Author and pastor Tim Keller, he describes our experience of spiritual homesickness like this. He says, Though we long for bodies that run and are not weary, I went for a run yesterday, I'm very, very weary, we have become subject to disease, aging, death. Though we need love that lasts, all our relationships are subject to the inevitable entropy of time and they crumble in our hands. Even people who say true to us, well, they die and leave us or we die and leave them. Though we long to make a difference in the world through our work, we experience endless frustration. 
we never fully realize our hopes and dreams. We may work hard to recreate the home that we have lost, but, says the Bible, it only exists in the presence of the Heavenly Father from which we have fled. So, so how do we deal with spiritual homesickness? Well, humans, we are endlessly creative, are we not? We don't so much deal with spiritual homesickness so much as we seek to manage spiritual homesickness. Uh, we busy ourselves, right? And we pray. We never have a spare moment alone with our thoughts. Or we medicate ourselves, right? Forgetting those thoughts altogether. Or if you've read Jack Kerouac's On the Road, the author Sal, I mean, the, the character Sal Paradise, he says, well, simply, the road is life. We never make it home. The road, the road is all there is until it starts to ring as a hollow consolation, especially in the face of danger and great trouble. The psalmist, however, this morning offers another solution. He says there is another way. You can, indeed, I have made my home with God. And this is exactly what that means is made clear in verse 2. Look at verse 2 with me. He says, I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God, listen, Christ City, in whom I trust. To abide in God is to trust in God, to lean on him, to endure our trials and dangers underneath his strong and capable and mighty wings, as he says in verse 4. So the question this morning, is he your home, your shelter, Christ City? I imagine, and maybe I'm wrong, but I imagine there are many this morning who would check the box alongside the, the title, abides in God, would say, yeah, I abide in God. If our friends ask if you're a Christian, yeah, I'm a Christian, right? If someone, you know, wants to know, I'll tell them, I, I, I'm a Christian, I believe in him. And, and that's our official stance, at least. You know, I, I can't help but think of uh, my grandfather, who was a shrewd individual, and I'm saying this nicely, and for, for tax purposes, he would list uh, his full-time you know, full residence as our cottage. Uh, that's where he lived, according to the government. If you're listening to government, I don't know what you're going to do about this. He's dead. But he would, live at, he would live at the cottage. And so every once in a while, he would drive up to the cottage to pick up mail at the cottage because that was his full-time residence. And so the con would go on and on and on. And, and on, and he would, you know, I had some sort of break out of that. And I couldn't help but think of the parallels between what he was doing and what many of us do in our spiritual lives. Our official P.O. box, as it were, is abides in God. That's what the government knows. That's what other people know. But honestly, if we're being very, very frank, we spend the rest of the week somewhere else. We live the rest of the week in a different place. Well, where do we live? Our anxious workaholism suggests we abide in our labor. Our proud virtue signaling on social media suggests we abide in our public perception. Our run to the fridge as soon as the last kid is put down suggests we abide in something other than the Lord, doesn't it? But as Psalm 91 reminds us, all of these, all of these are facades 
facades that will be exposed as such, as 23 and 24 Leinster Gardens, as it were, when danger comes. So the second question is this. Can your home withstand the storm? Where do you live, and can it withstand the storm? Look at verses 3 to 10 with me. The psalmist writes, and we read now, For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler, and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions. That's a part of the wing. I had to Google that this week. And under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler, a, a smaller shield. The big shield and a smaller shield. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. Verse 7. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come near your tent. Let's keep on reading to verse 13. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent. You will trample underfoot. We'll stop there. The danger, if, if again we're being honest, that the psalmist envisions might, might seem like a little archaic to us, right? Unless you're teaching like a camp for beginner archers or something, we don't, you know, we're not afraid of the arrow that flies by day, Right? There's no stray arrow coming for us, no, no sort of, you know, invading Mongolian horde next door. This is strange, ancient language that we are, can be disconnected from. But the reality is, on further inspection, the, the psalmist, his dangers are really our dangers. So let me translate for us. To translate the dangers that the psalmist has outlined, it's basically this. These are dangers arising from people who would plot against us. Enemies plotting against us. Further, these are dangers that are largely unseen, unanticipated, unexpected. Dangers that, despite our believed modern omnipotence and omnipresence, catch us off guard. These are dangers that attack body and mind. Dangers that come from other people and dangers that, in fact, are supernatural in origin. It turns out, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, that Bilbo is right. It is dangerous business sitting out your front door, but not for the faithful. See, the psalmist says, because he's put his trust in the Most High, he, on the contrary, will be delivered, covered, protected. No evil will befall him. In fact, the one who abides in the Lord will look on while the wicked are judged. Now, up until this point, you've listened very respectfully. I appreciate that. I, I really, really do. But surely, having said what I just said, there is some here who want to stand up and yell out, I object. I don't think that's true. That hasn't been my experience. How many here, including followers of Jesus, have fallen prey to the schemes of evil people. You can do a little hand raise at the side if you want. How many here, followers of Jesus, have been blindsided by something completely unjust, completely unexpected? How many here 
have suffered in body or mind. All our hands should be up, right? If you live in this world as I do, all our hands should be up right now. And if all our hands are up, the objection is amplified. What good does it do to abide in the shelter of the Almighty? Is this even true? Is it true? Or, or is it just a bunch of nice religious platitudes? You know, this psalm has been called by some uh, the soldier's psalm. The soldier's psalm. Occasionally, you'll see members of the U.S. military in particular received uh, camouflage bandanas with Psalm 91 printed on it. There are stories of soldiers in World War II as they sat in their foxholes and bombs going off around them reciting Psalm 91 over and over and over and over again. And I think in this way of thinking, in these circles, the hope, if we're being very honest, is that Psalm 91 acts as a sort of talisman, right? Say these words, recite these phrases, no evil, no danger will come to you. This is Psalm 91, the spiritual insurance policy. We can be confident, however, that reading Psalm 91 should not be read as an insurance policy because that's how Satan read Psalm 91. If Psalm 91 sounded familiar to you, it's because it's quoted in Matthew 4. Go to Matthew 4 with me. In Matthew 4, Jesus is led out into the desert by the Spirit. Jesus is the new and faithful Israel, the one who will not succumb under temptation. And he wants to show us that. Matthew will show us that here. And as Jesus is led out, the devil follows him. And the devil, who knows Scripture better than most of us, rather all of us, Knowing Psalm 91, quotes it to Jesus. Let's go to Matthew 4, 6 to 7. He says to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. Right? Psalm 91. He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. That seems to be how we read Psalm 91. But Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. See, the devil reads Psalm 91 and sees it as an opportunity for arrogance, for divine showboating, sort of this deific, deific uh, showing off. But Jesus reads Psalm 91, not arrogantly, not as an opportunity to flash his credentials, but as a promise of providence in every circumstance, every second of his life. A promise that if harm should come to him, and for Jesus it will come, that it is not purposeless, that it does not catch our Father off guard, but that whatever it is, it is powerless in ultimately separating him from the Father. So the first way we have to read Psalm 91 is that everything we endure indeed comes from God himself. Romans 8 teaches us this. And yet none of it can separate us from God. None of us can kill us in a definite eternal sense. But the other lens in which we must read Psalm 91 is, we could say, the eschatological sense. 
Jesus has the end in mind when you read Psalm 91. He knows there is coming a day when all this will be true, when no danger will come to us. And so in that way, Psalm 91 is our great comfort this morning. But also, Psalm 91 not only comforts us, but compels us. Look back at Matthew 4. No, Jesus doesn't fall into Satan's trap to act arrogantly like the entitled child of wealthy parents. He does not jump. No angels catch him. But angels do show up in Matthew 4. After the devil is done tempting Jesus, we read in Matthew 4.11, Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Later in Jesus' ministry, when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, about to be crucified the next day, Jesus knows that he will be crucified. Once more, he is crying out in anguish. Yet the Father does not send angels to rescue Jesus from that moment, from that situation. And yet once more, we read at Jesus' weakest moment, and there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him, allowing him to go through with what must be done. And so what should we make of all of this? What should we make of a father who allows his son to be tempted at his weakest moment, yet cares for him on the other side? What should we make of a father who allows his son to be crucified for the sins of the world, to cry out in agony, yet ministers to him in order that he might endure it? Well, I think we should make this of it. Following Jesus will not mean daisies and roses and fireworks and fun times. It will involve evil and danger. And to be very honest, as you're all well aware, it will involve these things for reasons we will not fully understand until we're with Jesus in eternity. But if nothing can befall me and you other than what God has sovereignly ordained for my good and my growth and my holiness and his if nothing can come to us other than what accomplishes those purposes, I am compelled to enter and to live and to love this dangerous world right outside my front door. Psalm 91 comforts us, but it's also meant, you see, to compel us, to push us out of our comfort. To say, go, I've got you. Many of us are aware right now, if we follow the news, of the Taliban takeover in Afghanistan. And it is a takeover. Many of us also know that life as a follower of Jesus in Afghanistan has just become very, 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 very dangerous. Horrendous stories, particularly concerning believers, continue to come out of Afghanistan. One believer tells about how his 14-year-old daughter has been taken by the Taliban into sexual servitude. Another, upon receiving a threatening note from the Taliban and fleeing just in time into hiding before they arrived to take him on Saturday morning. I, I read an article this week of a group of refugees who'd gathered in the States to pray about their brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. And honestly, as they heard and told stories amongst themselves of horror, we, we expect them to do what Job's wife told Job to do, Right? Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. 
Like the situation is messed up. We expect him to do that, right? That, that seems logical. What good is a God who allows us to endure this? Curse God and die. But they didn't do that. The article tells us that an Afghan evangelist stood up in this meeting and exhorted his fellow Christians like this. He says, don't forget, brothers and sisters, that God called the most wicked king on earth, Nebuchadnezzar, my servant. And then he says, God is most certainly calling the Taliban my servant. Next, they gather around Romans 10 and together reminded themselves, and I quote, that we are to build our faith on Jesus, the only cornerstone that can stand firm to the storm of the Taliban. See, in verse 13, we find this picture of these two animals, the lion and the serpent. Did you see that in verse 13? The lion and the serpent. And all throughout the scripture, we see Satan bearing these two faces, the face of the lion and the face of the serpent. In the beginning, of course, in the garden, the serpent who whispers lies to Adam and Eve. Of course, the curse on the serpent that a descendant of Adam will crush his head. But then also in the very next chapter, we read to Cain and Abel that Satan is crouching like a lion, ready to pounce, to attack. Now, Peter picks up on this imagery in the New Testament when he says that your enemy, Satan, is prowling around like what? Like, like a lion. And I couldn't help but think of our situation here in Vancouver and our brothers and sisters' situation in Afghanistan and how it's a perfect picture of Satan at work both as a lion and as a serpent. Overt persecution. You follow Jesus, you die. Or you're taken into sexual servitude or something terrible happens to you. Here in the West, let me whisper some lies to you. For now, freedoms are, we, we have those. There's no overt persecution. And yet, Psalm 91 is still for us. I struggled to enter this text this week aware of what our brothers and sisters around the world were facing. But then verse 13 reminded me, no, we are very much still under threat, very much still in the face of danger. One a lion, the other a serpent, both leading to death. When we make our home in God, we have comfort, but we're also compelled. Which brings us to this third question. So how can we get in on this? How does it happen that we move from these dinky structures of our own creation to this towering cathedral person of who God is? How do we abide in him? Look at verse 14. Verse 14 to 16 says this. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. I, I should confess at this point that, that Psalm 91, honestly, first, it's not first about us, actually. All throughout the psalm, the psalmist has said things like this. And, and listen if this sounds like your faith, because it doesn't sound like mine. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Listen to the psalmist's faith. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague can near your tent. 
And now the Lord speaks in verses 14 to 16. Because he holds fast to me in love. Doesn't sound like my faith. I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. It's a psalm full of conditions, isn't it? Lots of conditions. The promise in this psalm is to protect and guard the faithful. And if we're honest, as we've already admitted, that is not us. That's not me. That's not you. But there is one who always trusted God. There is one who refused to make earthly comforts or selfish ambition his dwelling place. There is one who always held fast to God in love, even when it seemed that God had abandoned one. Psalm 91 is about Jesus. It's about Jesus. It's why the devil can quote Psalm 91 to Jesus, because the devil knows that Jesus has fulfilled all of these requirements. You are the faithful one. Surely if God's going to catch anybody, if his angels are going to serve anybody, it's you. Jesus did this. So if home with the Father is only for the faithful and we ain't them, how do we get in? How do we get in? And the answer this morning is we don't. That is... God does not sit reclining on his cosmic lounge waiting for us to knock, waiting for the doorbell to ring. The reality is we don't even knock on the door. We can't. We love our little homes too much to knock on his. No, we don't come to God. God comes to us. God comes to us, and as John tells us, God makes his tabernacle, his home, with us. That we might then make our home with him. God sends his son, Jesus, the faithful one, who died on the cross, rose from the grave, ascended to the right hand of the Father, that if we put our trust in him, his faithfulness becomes our faithfulness. His obedience, our obedience. His righteousness, our righteousness. Why? Because we've made our home in him. He is our address, not just on Sunday, but on Monday and Tuesday and Thursday, indeed into eternity. See, Jesus, look back at the text with me. Jesus fulfills the conditions of verses 14 to 16. Jesus. Jesus held fast to God's love. Jesus knows the name of God. Jesus knows his character. Jesus, not me, not you. Jesus called to him and him alone in trouble. And because Jesus fulfilled the conditions of verses 14 to 16, you and I now in Christ are able to receive the promises. Jesus fulfills the conditions. In Christ, we receive all the promises, all the blessings. So listen, Christ City. Bow your heads, close your eyes, and receive the blessings that we have in Christ. Listen to this. Home in Christ, we are delivered from sin, Satan, and death. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. No height, nor depth, nor anything seen, nor unseen. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. 
receive this Christ city. Home in Christ. We are protected and secure from the schemes of the devil. What can he do to us? And the answer is nothing. Home in Christ. The Father hears our prayers. He answers them and responds to them. Home in Christ. The Spirit is with us and filling us and leading us and guiding us and whispering to us in every trial. Home in Christ. We are not only rescued, but we are called and honored as children of God and so much more. Receive this blessing, Christ City. Home in Christ, we will enjoy long, eternal life beginning now, today. Home in Christ, we have salvation from the storm, shelter from evil. Christ City, look at the dinky homes that you have made. See them for what they are. Flawed structures. Structures built on sand that will collapse when the seas come, when the storm arises. Put your home in Christ. Make him your abode. Make him your dwelling place, not just today, but every day. Christ City, in whom do you dwell? In whom do you dwell?